suggested to you that it's a word that in Christian circles we regularly use, but if pushed, probably would struggle to come up with a definition that, um, that would really get to the essence of what grace is about. I've suggested that, uh, actually I'll go a couple on if I may, that for most of us, that's what we've been told grace is about, the, un, the unmerited favor of God. I, I really think that the unmerited favor of God is actually a better definition of mercy than it is of grace. Um, I, I, part of the reason I think that is passages like these, James chapter 4 verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5, that I'm sure you're familiar with. The, both those passages say, in essence, that God gives grace to the humble, but that he resists the proud. If, if this is your definition of grace, then we have an anomaly because it's clear from those two passages that there is something about humility that merits the grace of God. If it's unmerited, then what is it about humility that draws it and pride that, that causes God to resist us? I also suggested that as you begin to look at passages in the New Testament where grace is used, that, that if you use that definition, it, it doesn't resonate. It, think of that passage in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. To suggest that grace in that passage means unmerited favor just doesn't ring true. It would, it would ring true if it was you and I that it was talking about. But Jesus is the sinless Savior, and to say that he's full of the unmerited favor of God somehow, at least for me anyway, seems to drop short of, of the mark. So we've been looking at a, an alternative definition of grace, one that James Ryle has given us, called grace, uh, which says grace is the empowering presence of God that enables us to be all that he's called us to be and to do all that he's called us to do. And Bill Gothard's definition of grace, which is the desire and the power to do that, that God gives us to do as well. Now, when you take those two definitions, the idea of grace being the empowering presence of God that enables us to be and do all that God wants us to be and do, and then apply those to the New Testament passages where grace is used, there's a resonance there that makes sense. And uh, our first message, what we did was we spent pretty much the whole time taking that thought and applying it to passages where grace is used and showing how it fits. In the second message, that which is last Sunday night, I spoke about posturing ourselves to receive grace, and I talked about humility. Those two passages that I just uh, referenced, James and 1 Peter, where it says, if we will humble ourselves, God will release grace to us. And we looked at what it is to walk in humility. And I suggested again to you that humility is essentially agreeing with God's assessment of us. Uh, I'm not going to go over it anymore. What I'm going to do tonight, and, and, and I... I think it will be reasonably brief, but I want to give you some snapshots of, of what grace is. Now, some of the snapshots actually link and overlap, but some of them are, are just kind of snapshots. They don't necessarily have any reference to, to um, uh, the flow of thought. Uh, there's not a, a passage or a flow of thought through these snapshots. I'm just presenting them to you as snapshots of grace. And I've started them all with S as preachers are wont to do, um, because 
essentially, I want you to remember them, all right? So uh, we're going to go through them. Saved by grace, shaped by grace, surrendered to grace, surrounded by grace, and stewards of grace, okay? So here we go. Number one, we're saved by grace. All of us know that. You don't have to be Christian for five minutes, and someone tells you you're saved by grace. When we use the word saved, we almost always use it and think about it in terms of the past tense. We, we use the word saved almost entirely in the context of being born again. And a very favorite memory verse of most Sunday schools is, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But I want you to notice there that it doesn't say you were saved. It says you are saved. And salvation consists of far more than simply our born-again experience. Salvation is a comprehensive term that talks about everything that God does for us from the time that we open our hearts to what Jesus has done on the cross for us to the time that we are taken up finally into his presence. Some of you may have been around in 2007 when I did a series of about seven or eight messages called Unpacking Salvation. And I drew a diagram, kind of the umbrella of salvation. And I talked about all of the words and concepts and ideas that go into making up what salvation is. Propitiation, reconciliation, uh, justification, regeneration, sanctification, glorification. All of those kind of technical terms all, all are part of what salvation is about. And the Bible tells us that all of this happens by the grace of God. Now, you could fit in there the unmerited favor of God. We understand that unless God has mercy on us, none of these things are possible. But in actual fact, again, if you take that definition of the empowering presence of God and slot it into we are saved by grace, this ongoing process, and it all happens by grace, there's, again, a resonance to that that makes sense to me in a way that the whole idea of unmerited favor doesn't. Salvation is an ongoing process, not just simply a past event. It's a relationship to be lived out, not just a past event to be celebrated and remembered, as, as important as that is. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, if, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by His life. Reconciliation, the joining of our hearts with God, is the beginning of the salvation process. And you notice that it starts there by virtue of the death of Christ on the cross. This, this is his death, past tense, that reconciles us. But we shall be saved, that's present and future, by his life. Salvation is an ongoing process that happens by grace through faith. Have I been saved? Yes. Am I being saved? Yes. Will I be saved? Yes. I've been saved from the penalty of sin and I've been reconciled to God. I'm being saved by the power of His grace in me from the power of sin. That's the whole process of sanctification. And I will be saved finally one day from the very presence of sin. That's what the Bible calls glorification. And it's all by grace. That ongoing process happens in us as we avail ourselves, as we make ourselves open to the empowering presence of God within us that seeks to form Christ in us. So we're saved by grace. Secondly, we're shaped by grace. Obviously, these two thoughts are very related since the idea of being shaped is part 
of that wider plan of salvation. But let me consider that just a little more closely because it is where most of us are living tonight. I'm, assumed that, I'm assuming that most of us have been reconciled by his death, that we've become Christians and given our lives to Christ. And we are now in that process where we are being shaped by that empowering presence into the likeness of the one that gave his life for us. We've been reconciled by his mercy and grace. Now the ongoing grace of God in our lives, that ongoing empowering presence is seeking to shape us. Look, look at this passage in Titus. It says, the grace of God that, that, that brings salvation. There's, there's the connection again. Grace, the empowering presence, bringing salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us. What's teaching us? The grace of God is teaching us that having denied ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live discreetly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So we see salvation being brought to us by grace. And then it goes on to tell us that this grace teaches us. It schools us or disciplines us. That's the idea of the word. It shapes us in an ongoing manner. In order for that to happen, you and I have to yield to that grace so that the image of Christ is formed within us. It's the empowering presence that gives us the power and the desire to resist the pull of this world and all its attractions. Some, some people give their lives to Christ and then they seek to stay in that position by the, the strength of their own will. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to do wrong. They're going to do the right thing. Now, I commend that attitude, but the reality is you don't walk long with Jesus before you find the conundrum that Paul found in Romans chapter 7. I want to do the right thing, but I find myself not doing it. And, and uh, at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul in frustration is throwing his hands up and saying, how is this possible? Who's going to rescue me? And then it comes in. In Romans chapter 8, telling us, that the Spirit of God living within us is going to release grace so that the pull of this world's attractions and, 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 and its cravings is going to be broken by a stronger power. And it's the power of His empowering presence in us, His grace in us, shaping us and teaching us how to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and how to live discreetly and righteously and godly. Not by just... You know, the veins in our necks puffing out and, and, and by the sweat of our brow, that's religious legalism. The do's and don'ts of, of church life that never produce life. But learning how to yield to the Spirit of the Lord within us. Learning how to do what I was talking about this morning. Living in integrity of heart. Living before His presence, allowing His light to shine in us and not turning sideways away from it but learning to hear his commentary on our attitudes, our, our actions, our, just opening up our hearts, our ambitions, and saying, Lord, you speak to me about them. So we're saved by grace. We're shaped by grace. It, it's vital that we surrender to grace. Okay? This very much also flows from the last point. Grace is intended to shape us, but we've got to surrender to it if it's going to be effective. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, But working together, we also uh, call on you not to receive the grace of God in vain. All right? Not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
And, and his grace, which was bestowed on me, was not in vain. Both these two passages talk about the grace of God. The clear implication is that the grace of God can be in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. It wasn't bestowed on me, Paul says, in vain. The idea of the word vain there, by the way, is emptiness without purpose. Thayer, in his lexicon, says it is used metaphorically as something destitute of spiritual wealth, of one who boasts of his faith as a transcendent possession, yet without the fruit of faith. It's possible to resist the grace of God or to fall short of the grace of God so that its intended impact simply does not take place. The Bible says very specifically God's empowering presence is reaching out to us, but we must receive it. We must surrender to it. We must make room for it. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, If by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. The word receive there means to lay hold of or to seize. You've got to reach out and take the grace of God that's being offered to you. The empowering presence of God comes offering to bring you into the fullness of all God's purpose for you and all that He wants you to do and all that He wants you to be, but you can resist it. The Bible talks about that. It talks about that in Hebrews chapter 12, allowing bitterness to rise up in our lives whereby we fall short of the grace of God. Bitterness is a sure way to resist grace, the grace of God because bitterness and his free-flowing favor in our lives don't, don't coexist. So you've got to choose whether you're going to be a bitter individual or whether you're going to be a grace-filled individual. But if you're bitter, that'll cut off grace. Legalism, the Bible says, in Galatians, can stop the grace of God. If we are determined to be godly in our in our own strength and by virtue of our own resources, our hands are so filled with our own purpose that God can't release his purpose into clutched fingers. So we've got to be open and available to grace. We've got to reach out and receive it. See this passage here? It talks about one man's offense as a result of one man's offense. Death reigns. The, the Taylor Living Bible, have I got it there? says this. The sin of one man, Adam, caused death to be king. Death has a rule. Sin is a power, and it exercises a dominion. And by virtue of Adam's sin, we are all brought under its jurisdiction. But the Bible says here there's an abundance of grace that if you will receive, will change the kingship, the jurisdiction under which you live. And it will take you out of sin's dominion where sin and death are king into a place where life and Jesus is king. Again, the Taylor Living Bible says, far more shall the reign of life be established to you by that abundance of grace. Another translation says, the abundance of grace bids men enjoy a reign of life through one man. But it all hinges on that phrase, if you'll receive it. If you'll let it have its full impact on your life. Life begins to have its full impact and we begin to realize the full purpose of God as we allow that empowering presence of God within us to have full sway. And we move from one dominion into another. Sin will not have dominion over you for you're not under the law, but you're under grace. You move out of that place where sin and death exercise its dominating, cajoling, bullying power 
over your life and you come out into a freedom of living in grace. Doesn't mean, by the way, that if you receive God's grace, life will be easy or simple. It wasn't either of those things for Paul who was writing this passage. But what God did promise him was that even when trouble came, there would be grace sufficient for him that God's purposes would not be thwarted. Paul, on one occasion, you'll remember, cried out to God. He said, this is so difficult. I'm asking you to remove it. He described a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was. Some people suggest it might have been sickness. I, I don't actually think the passage lends itself to that. I think probably what it lends itself to is that there was an assignment out against Paul, and wherever he went, there were powers of darkness that stirred up trouble and just Wherever he went, there was you know, either a revival or a riot, sometimes both. And I, I think anybody ministering in that kind of setting probably comes to a place where you just think, you know what, I, I wish it wasn't like this all the time. God, could you take this away? And God says to him, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. As I've said a couple of times during this series, if grace is simply unmerited favor, then Paul might feel somewhat comforted by that, you know? I'm in trouble, and God says, my unmerited favor is towards you. Well, thank you, Lord, for that, but I need something to get me through the problem, to know that you are somewhat disposed to me is, is, is nice, but doesn't help me. But if you read into that passage, my empowering presence is with you, and it's sufficient to bring my purposes to pass in the midst of what you're facing. That changes everything for me. Because suddenly he's saying, yes, you're in trouble, Paul, but there's a greater abundance of grace available to you. Yes, sin rules, and yes, death conquers. But my grace, the abundance of my grace, is enough for you to realize the purpose that I have for you and to finish the course in spite of the trouble. So opening up to grace doesn't mean a trouble-free life. What it does mean is in the midst of the trouble, God's empowering presence in those circumstances can still bring to pass His purposes. So we're saved by grace. We're shaped by grace. We've got to surrender to grace. And number four, we're to be surrounded by grace. This point actually relates back to something I alluded to in the very first message. I talked about the various mes measures that God has, um, what's the word, maybe, maybe purposed for each life. I, I drew it in terms of some concentric circles. And I asked you to imagine in Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament scripture, God appointed Israel a land. And he told them the boundaries of the land. And he said, I want you to go in and to kick out the enemies, and I want you to push the boundaries back to their intended purposes. Now, we know from the Old Testament that the children of Israel never did that fully. They did it to its fullest extent under David's rule. But even under David's rule, they never pushed the boundaries of the land out to what God intended for them. I believe that God has intended something of largeness for every single one of us. And it starts off with a sphere of authority. He says to each one of us, I have a sphere of authority for you, a place where you will function comfortably with the giftings, the call of God on your life, the, the measure of faith that I've given you, the giftedness that I've given you, and the measure of grace. The Bible talks about all of those things in measure. And he says, I want you to fill out to the fullest extent what I've purposed for you. 
I kind of joked on that first night, you know, and said, how many of you have received a report from a school teacher who said, so-and-so is not reaching their full potential? And, and uh, you know, we, we've all either had that on our own report card or we've seen it on our friends or our kids. or You know, there's more in this person than they're presently realizing. And I wonder that God wouldn't write a report card for some of us like that. There's much more to this person than they are realizing or that they realize. I have a measure of authority for them. Paul talked about his measure of authority in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 and verse 13. And he was talking about the sphere of his service that was rather large. And he said, to go with that sphere of service in Romans chapter 12, he's given me a measure of faith. To go with that sphere of service and that measure of faith, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10 says he's given me giftedness. And then to go with that, there's this, Ephesians 4 talks about the measure of grace. All of these are designed to go out to their fullest extent. We are to have our lives surrounded by that grace. We need to see the full purposes of God realized for us. There's a calling on your life. Are you realizing it? Do you even know what it is? Have you set your heart to find out? There's faith and giftedness that go within that circle. And there's a measure of his grace that will allow it to be pushed out. The empowering presence of God that will enable you to be what you're called to be and do what you're called to do. Interestingly enough, and and to be truthful, I hesitate saying this because I'll explain why in just a moment, but if you move outside that appointed circle, then then what you do, and you you see this with with ministries, you see them move outside the realm, we would say, of their calling. And uh, what happens is outside the rule of authority is a realm of mercy, and you step outside your sphere of authority and you step into mercy. And you can live there for a season. But if you continue, you just get further and further and further away. Now, the mercy of God will always reach you and bring you back. But, but God wants you to dwell in that place, to find that place and live within it. Sometimes I've heard people say, you know, they're asked to do something and they say, you know what, I just don't have the grace for that. I wonder if you've heard that said. I just, I just don't have the grace for that. I, I, that, that. That comment is possibly articulating exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I know some people say those kinds of things for reasons of nothing more than laziness and an unwillingness to commit. But the reality is it is possible to move into an area that God hasn't given you grace for. And what you find there is not abundant grace, but abundant problems. Uh, for a lot of people in ministry and in life who burn out, you know, we big phrase, you know, people are burnt out. One of the reasons for that is people step outside their sphere of anointing, outside their sphere of calling. And suddenly the ministry which had sat so easily in that sphere is grinding, is difficult, is hard work. Because God's not going to grace you for something that he hasn't called you for. Now, now, the reason I hesitate to even mention that is that almost invariably there are people listening to me who say, it's just all this stuff's doing my head and I don't know what circle I'm in. You know? how sh- I mean, I don't know what I'm called to. How, how, how are you supposed to know? And, and when people talk like you're talking, it just frustrates the living daylights out of me. Look, in that instance, hang on, let me just get there. In that instance, 
Just Ecclesiastes 9.10 is good advice. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You'll find out. If you're doing it with integrity of heart, God will lead you. Don't sweat it. Don't stress it. If you don't know, do some things and you'll find out. All right? Serve and you'll find out. You know, when I first got saved, I got thrust into all kinds of areas of service. I, I, I taught children's church for two or three years. I found out. As much as I loved the kids and actually was a school teacher and I think I got thrust into it by virtue of that training, I found out that's not where I was called to be. I did what I could because there was a need, but I realized that if I was to carry on in that, what would happen is I would just burn out because it, was, it wasn't where I was called to or called for. When I, was, when I was a senior pastor in a church where I was the only person on staff, I did all kinds of things. I had to do a lot of counseling, and I found out very quickly a couple of things. Number one, I wasn't good at counseling, and people thought I wasn't good at counseling. When you're told, get over it, it doesn't help you. I, I, seriously, I didn't tell people that sort of thing, but, but I, I began... I began the early stages of burnout. I started to wake up in the morning and think, you know, I mean, I wouldn't wake up and think, where am I? I wouldn't wake up and think, is it raining? I wouldn't wake up and think, who's that lying next door to me? I wouldn't. My first thought on waking would be, who do I have to see today? Oh, God, no. I knew I was in trouble. Seriously. I, I, I mean, I'm ashamed to say that, but I got to that place where I was just getting worn thin. And I knew God had shown me mercy, but I was outside the sphere of my calling. And I needed to spend as much time in that circle as I could. And I found out those things by doing some things. Some people sit and wait. Well, you're never going to find it. You never will. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And in that process of serving, you will find the right fit. And God will bring you to that place of authority, of faith, of giftedness, and of grace. And we need to live our lives in that place, lest we find ourselves worn out, burnt out, given up. Okay? So we're saved by grace. We're shaped by grace. We've got to surrender to grace. We need our lives and ministries to be surrounded by grace. And then ultimately, in closing, we're stewards of grace. Okay? 1, 1, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, Each one, as he has received a gift, minister it. Okay? This, this is, you can see the circle in this. He's been given a gift. Flow in the faith. And in that giftedness, into the sphere of authority. And it says, minister it among yourselves as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That word manifold, by the way, means multifaceted. The grace of God is multifaceted. It's like a kaleidoscope. God's grace is different for each one of us because his call and his shape for us is, is different. And uh, we can't alone do it all. But all of us together can do it because God has given each of us a piece. And as we bring it to the table and as we learn to minister it, the, if, I can put it what, if I can put it this way, in 1 Corinthians it says, we are, we are one loaf, Paul says. 
And each one of us, as we come to the communion table, break off a piece of that loaf. If that loaf is ever going to be reassembled, each of us have to bring our piece back. Each one of us have been gifted. I can't do it all, but together we can do it all. I can't do the counseling. I'm not good at it. It drives me nuts. But there are people who are incredibly gifted at it. And one of the ways you find out whether you're gifted at it or not is as you do it, you are energized by it. You don't come away. You can come tired in the work of the Lord, but not tired of the work of the Lord. And when you do what you're called to do, you're energized by it. This might sound nuts to you in the same way that a counselor seems nuts to me, but you give me a Bible and a whole lot of books, and I can lock myself in an office for eight hours and come out, whoa, I can take on the world. Now, for some of you, you'd come out, you know, God, you know, ah! It would drive you nuts. For some of you, talking about your faith to somebody at work, you come away walking on air afterwards. For others of you, the thought of talking about your faith at work sends you running in the other direction. You just want a tea towel to do the dishes. For some of you, the thought of hospitality is what just spins your wheels. And you love having people around. You love serving people. For others, all you can think of is the dishes at the end of it. We're all different. We're all different depending on our gifts. There's a person who's not gifted at hospitality. <laughs> okay. The, the, the issue is there's a, there's a law of the kingdom, and it's simply this. You only get to keep what you give away. All right? You only get to keep what you give away. If you don't put gifts to work, you lose them. You know, when I gave you that illustration of the, of the, the circle, there's, there's probably one adjustment I would make to that because I believe the outer circle is actually fluid. I'm not so sure that it's as fixed as the children of Israel in the land. I actually think it's fluid. And I think it's fluid on the basis of what Jesus said when he said, unto whom much is given, much is required. He who does much will be given even more. He who doesn't do with what he has will, will find it taken away. And there is the possibility of the circle either shrinking or being enlarged. In that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about his circle being enlarged. And it was being enlarged by virtue of the faithful service that that man was rendering. He was putting his gift of apostleship to work, and as a result, God was giving him more work. Now, some of you think if you do lots of work, you should have a holiday. God says if you do lots of work, I'll give you even more. The only thing, the only people that make sense to is people who are gifted. And they say, yes, please. More people to witness to. Fantastic. More books to read. Wow. So many books, so little time. That's the only people it makes sense to. But God knows when you're made for something and given more of it, it energizes you even more. You've got to be a steward of the gifting that God's put in you. He's put his grace within you. What you do with it how you receive it, respond to it, and steward it depends on whether the circle contracts or expands. We're saved by grace. The ongoing process of salvation is continued as we open our hearts and allow that grace to shape us, teaching us 
how to resist the pull of this world, not by the stress and straining of our own abilities, but just simply yielding to the life within us. We, we've got to receive that grace. We've got to surrender to it. We've got to be surrounded by it in our lives or we'll find ourselves burnt out, dried up. And then we've got to steward it, that grace, okay? All of those things only make sense, to me at least, if grace is not the unmerited favor of God, but is rather the empowering presence of God in our lives that enables us to be all we're called to be and to do all that God wants us to do. I'm going to ask if the musos would come. Actually, somebody asked me an incredibly good question this week, and I, I'm, I wasn't going to touch on it. I don't know whether I still am, but I, I may touch on it next week just to finish and wrap this series up. But the question basically related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit relate to grace? Is, is the Holy Spirit's power the same as grace? And I thought, what an incredibly well thought through question. And I, I made reference in my answer to the book of Hebrews, which actually calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of grace. He's the one. He's the one who comes. And in one sense, when we're opening to grace, we're opening to a person, not, not a thing, but an empowering presence. It's His presence. And I want to encourage you as we finish tonight, just to open your hearts and say, Spirit of grace, would you come? I need your empowering presence. If I'm going to be what you want me to be, and if I'm going to do what you've called me to do, it won't be in the strength of my own choices and resources because I don't have that much. I, I, I know that by experience, and I suggest that probably most of you or many of you do too. But what we can do is open our hearts to Him and say, would you let that amazing grace, your presence, grip my life. Grip my life. Not on, the re not on the margins. Not on the margins, but grip my life. Our, one of the things that just has troubled me so much as I look at our culture is how trivial it is. We are dying in a mass of trivia. And, and we are so accustomed to it that we're blinded by it. And we enter into it. And you see people that are passionate about issues that don't have any eternal value. You see people who are passionate about some television program. Wouldn't miss it come hell or high water. Absolutely passionate to the point of worship about some sports pursuit. Wouldn't miss it come hell or high water. Would to God that we, as the people of God, could be so gripped by something that is actually eternal. These other things count for nothing at the end of the day. I'm not saying they're illegal or wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't be and enjoy a TV program or have a hobby or love a sport. But for God's sake, let's keep them in perspective. Let's not be drowned in the trivia of our culture. Let's be gripped by grace. Let's be gripped by it. Let's ask for it, okay? Spirit of grace, would you come? Grab my heart with your empowering presence. Make a difference in me so that I can then steward that 
and make a difference in the world that I have contact with. Let's make that our prayer as we finish, can we? Would you stand with me? I'm, I'm going to ask if our musicians and singers would just sing Amazing Grace. For a start, I don't want you to join them. What, what I'd love you to do, if you feel free to do so, is just lift your hands. And as they're be reminded, the form is only valid if it's 